This evening I would like to speak about opening our heart. One of the dimensions of what we experience in meditation, one of the ways we can understand the process that we go through, is as a process of opening, of opening our heart, of opening our being to life. It's, I think, interesting how many of us come to meditation with this rather sweet, I guess, and perhaps rather attractive idea that uh, we'll come and there'll be some maybe instructions or whatever, and that there'll be this rather steady and probably quite rapid progression in a rather linear and predictable way from uh, chaos and confusion and suffering to peace and ease and joy and uh, you know probably a few blissful experiences along the way. And uh, well it's probably not such a bad thing and maybe it gets us here in the first place but on the other hand uh, what we do often find is that that's not really quite what goes on for us. That we are in many ways and at many times in meditation as in our lives challenged by that which we mean. And meditation is an invitation, an opportunity and offers us the possibility and the support for being able to recognize and to understand what is our relationship to our life what is both our habitual and conditioned relationship to our life and equally what are the possibilities that are open to us for relating to our life. Meditation presents us with the possibility of transformation and yet before we can begin to consider what transformation might look like how we might actually experience that ourselves we need to perhaps look a little bit at how we relate to the world because it is in fact in this realm of our relationship to the world that transformation is most immediately and directly accessible to us. And I remember some time ago reflecting on a certain, a certain experience I had as a child, as a young boy and I felt really rather sad about it in that I had this experience of being a, a member of the Boy Scouts and not such, not such a sad thing to be a member of the Boy Scouts um, not such a bad organisation but that what I actually realised when I looked back on my time there is one thing I'd been given is when we went into the natural world when we went into the outdoors there was kind of this message drummed into us that it was something we had to defend ourselves from and that equally we were entitled to somehow exploit it in order to get what we want or to protect ourselves in some way. And exploiting it might have involved chopping down living trees and building ourselves shelters, which you know, kind of useful in some circumstances. But the sense of having to defend oneself from the world or seeing the natural world as some, somehow hostile to us, seeing life as somehow hostile to us, this is an attitude that we can pick up in many different ways. And if it's unconscious, if it's not 
seen clearly for what it is, then it can have incredible impact upon how we live. If we live our life relating to what is around us, that we call the world, that we call other people, relating to that which is inside us, is something that we maybe have to defend ourselves from, then what we often experience is that the process of our life is a process of building up patterns of behavior, patterns of thinking, ways of relating that somehow seem to keep us safe. That perhaps create a sense for us of a, of a safety born of being armored against the world, strong on the outside, in order to protect ourselves from the many sharp things out there that can touch us poignantly, that can penetrate to the rather soft and tender inside that we experience in our being. And sometimes what we notice in meditation, and it's not uncommon, is that we have an experience, or over a period of time the experience is somewhat like having one's armour stripped away. Like finding that as one opens into the sense of safety and spaciousness that is offered as an environment that is created through the ethical precepts and the commitments to non-harming that we all share in coming here, that there's a process that, that starts to expose our inner life to us. It's almost, a, almost like a tenderizing, a tenderizing of our being that we, we experience whereby in coming to consciously inhabit our mind, our heart and our body, we begin to feel. We begin to feel deeply many things. And just a simple process of coming back to our body, coming back to our breath, coming back to whatever is happening right now. This, this process isn't just about cultivating a strength of attentiveness or a capacity to focus and direct the mind, although this is part of what it contributes to. But equally this process of coming back again and again, it's a process of coming back into contact, coming back into relationship with our experience, coming back into relationship with our life. And as we do that, that very movement of coming back in again, when so many of the things t take us away, are in some ways defences, in some ways mechanisms that we've developed, cultivated, perhaps unconsciously, to make ourselves feel safe, to, to save ourselves being or protect ourselves from being touched by that which we find uncomfortable or painful or difficult. And and in having, in starting to to break away from or even break down those patterns that have kept us from having to feel, not surprisingly then, we start to feel. We start to feel many different things. And sometimes people report in meditation that, you know, it seems to be going horribly wrong. I've got all these difficult feelings. Or, you know, obviously something's not right. My body's giving me con considerable unpleasant sensations. You know, so obviously I'm doing something wrong here. That's not necessarily the case. It may simply be that one's willingness to open to what is there is actually increasing, and this can only be a good thing. For all that we create defence mechanisms, 
ways of thinking about who we are and how we are, stories of the past and future in which we describe ourselves in certain ways, certain forms of activity and patterns of avoiding that which is difficult. No matter how much of that we do, no matter how good at it we become, fundamentally we are unable to escape ourselves. We can't do it, although we may give us give ourselves the temporary illusion of that experience. When we actually start to become distant or disconnected from ourselves, we feel maybe that we have escaped from that which is difficult. But in fact we simply disconnected without actually becoming distant from it. To not escape ourselves, to actually go deeper into our heart, to go deeper into our life, this is to begin to live again in a more full and a more whole way. And again, sometimes when we think of meditation, you know, we have these images of sort of people sitting looking very calm and serene and, you know, they're sort of kind of chilled out, it seems. There's just nothing affecting them, untouched by the world, it seems. You're like, wow, that looks good. I'd like a bit of that, please, you know. And it seems like these people have got this really safe distance, you know. Nothing touches me. I'm unshaken by the world. And that's attractive, because we feel touched, we feel shaken by the world. And it's not easy. But that often tends to reinforce, I think, a view that, that a meditative relationship to life is one in which we're kind of at a safe distance. We're not getting involved, we're not getting entangled, you know, we're get, not getting identified. All those things could be taken to reinforcing the idea that we kind of got to back off from our life. And that equanimity, which is a quality um, frequently spoken of in such circles as these, in situations like this, that equanimity isn't about some absence of relationship. Equanimity, as one Tibetan teacher once said, is to be equally near to all things. To be equally near to all things. And for me this evokes a sense of actually allowing ourselves to touch and be touched by the entire range of our experience, whatever that might be. And that equanimity is that capacity of heart and mind that trusts in our ability to do so and that understands the wisdom of doing this, of, of relating to our experience in this way, where we are equally near to it. That we're not distant from it, it's not a safe distance. It's actually a place in which we allow everything to come so close that we are touched by it. Because although it may seem to us that some degree of armour, some degree of hardness, or sort of exterior shell or walls that we maybe build around us, maybe it seems to us that it serves us. And perhaps at times in our life, maybe when we were young, if we were overwhelmed by difficult things, as we can be when we're young, and we build up these, maybe at those times it serves us to some degree. There's a way in which we do find some protection in having armour. That's true, sometimes it does serve us. But equally and all too easily, the armour which began, or the shell which was at first a protection, 
ultimately becomes a prison in which we find ourselves entrapped. And that the only way to move beyond the limitations of our armour is to to be willing to once again be open and vulnerable, to be tender. I was uh, going for a walk last year, in fact, at the uh, centre where the ocean lives, Insight Meditation Society. I was teaching a retreat there with some uh, other friends at the time. And uh, I was going for a walk in the woods, and uh, the woods there are somewhat more wild than the woods here, all kinds of manner of creatures, from uh, moose and the occasional bear I've even heard in the local area, and certainly wolves and... uh, other things uh, to be found in the woods. And as I was walking down near the the beaver dam, I suddenly saw on the path a snake. And I come from a country, New Zealand, there are no snakes. So me and snakes, hmm, there was a few responses there. So like, whoa, you know, just body just stops. Mind doesn't have to do much, body just stops. I'm looking at the snake. There's a classic story in Buddhist teachings about someone who confuses the rope with a snake or the snake with a rope and uh, I won't go into that right now but in any event this was a snake literally because once it was a snake but actually it was a snake skin it was a snake skin that had been left there perfectly a whole skin except just at the head where it had come out and, put, and released itself and I just looked at it it's just, I picked it up it was this hard sort of tough sort of scaly thing. And I thought, gosh, you know, that snake had to get out of that skin. Why did it have to do that? Because once it's grown that protective outer layer, it can't get any bigger. It can't grow. If it wishes to grow, it has to shed its armour. And when it does it, what comes out of that armour is soft and pink and tender and juicy. And it's got to be careful in that moment that it doesn't get spotted by anything that might want to eat it. So in order to shed our armour, it's of course wise to find a place where we feel safe. But if we wish to grow, if we wish to not be bound by the limitations of the protections we have built around ourselves that may have once served us but no longer do, we need to be willing to enter into that place of tenderness, that place where we're rather more soft and vulnerable. And it's interesting to reflect perhaps on what we, being human beings, I guess we tend to think that human beings are at the top end of the evolutionary scale. Um, it's generally the way it's described. That, you know, so first there were these, then there were these, and then human beings, you know, the final uh, act of successful creation, uh, whether it was a uh, divine or a uh, purely uh, sort of coincidental process. And whether or not that's actually a... Uh, accurate perspective. Certainly it's interesting to look at the, um, for instance, the insect world, in which most insects actually have a shell around the outside. And it's hard and strong around the outside and full of all soft, sort of tender stuff on the inside. And yet the reality is with insects, they can't actually grow that big because of it. That's what limits the size of insects, basically, that they have hard shells. Whereas 
the mammals and reptiles and fish and all that, all these so-called higher creatures, the strong part is on the inside, not on the outside. It's what's called the skeleton. And that's an interesting reflection for me in terms of what would it mean to be strong in this world. The strength must be on the outside if we are to be able to grow without hindrance. So it's rather useful for us then to look at the process that occurs, to see how it is that we close down, how it is that we build this armour around us. Because it's not just something left over from a pattern or a habit sometime in the past. For many of us, if not most of us, it's something that we continue to do, that we continue to reinforce, consciously or unconsciously. To see how when things are difficult, when things are painful, our tendency is to withdraw, to pull away, or to push away. That aversive pattern which Muation was speaking about last night, that we can recognize in ourselves. To see how it is that we get locked into those patterns. It's not just a habitual reaction. Whether we're closing down to another, closing down to parts of ourselves. Often within that there's some way in which we blame another, or we blame ourselves for the suffering, for the pain, for the difficulty that we're experiencing and which we are seeking to avoid. And that sense of blaming, that sense of critical and uh, judgmental rejection that we, that we tend to experience, that we often tend to believe when it comes as a, a way of responding or reacting, that, that leads to us easily not just rejecting or pushing away, but actually being quite harsh, quite unkind, demanding to others, harsh, unkind and demanding upon ourselves. And there's an incredible amount of suffering that comes in that process for us. When we find ourselves trying to push ourselves away, trying to protect ourselves, it seems, from even that which is within, that which is inside us. It's often that in that situation, in some way or in some level, we've taken the view that there's something wrong. Something wrong with someone else something wrong with ourselves and that sense of wrongness wrong with me, wrong with you it seems to justify a relationship in which we push it away in which we exclude it in which we actually feel that it's appropriate for us to build a barrier between ourselves or that part of ourselves that we're identified with in that moment that's trying to avoid it and that which we're trying to avoid, which may be something or someone outside us, ourselves, maybe something within our experience. So to look, what's our relationship to our heart, our body, our mind that leads us to do this? We experience pain in our body. And often we say it's because, you know, in meditation, because they make me sit in that horrible posture on those horrible cushions and that you know, in that room and they don't ring the bell for much longer than 45 minutes, I'm sure. That's why it hurts. You've probably all been sitting there thinking, you know, they've fallen asleep, we've been here for hours, we'll never get out. And why are we so concerned? It's because it's painful sometimes. But, you know, we usually think that pain arises because of the posture and sometimes that's the case. 
because it's unfamiliar, it's unusual or because we're just not moving but in fact there's a little more too pain than just that and of course pain can arise from illness or injury or um, weakness of the body and one has to acknowledge that that's part of the reality of our human life but even without that it's kind of interesting to reflect on that experience that we call pain and which by definition we don't like the Buddha once said the pain of the body is revealed by the postures and this is a little bit cryptic but what he actually meant as I understand it is that in keeping on changing your posture you can avoid actually feeling discomfort and this is what we're used to doing if you keep changing your posture away from any place that's uncomfortable you'll never feel uncomfortable but you have to keep shuffling and no matter what the posture is if you lie down on a comfortable mattress you could buy the most expensive one on the planet if you lie down and don't move it won't take that long before it come, becomes uncomfortable if you actually stay awake and lie there it will start to hurt so we couldn't imagine a more comfortable posture if you lie there long enough the skin will start to break down or you'll get sores at the places where you're in contact with the mattress this happens to people who are elderly and infirm or um, bedridden for any reason there's something about the nature of our body that it experiences pain and there's something about the nature of our mind that it keeps trying to avoid that fact and the postures reveal this to us equally as changing the postures conceals it from us so to look at what is a wise response to this experience of bodily pain what happens very easily is that because we don't like it we actually don't want to attend to it there's a, there's a lovely story told uh, another story of Mullah Nasruddin who I'm a great fan of um, and in this story uh, Mullah was going down to the market to have a chat with some of his friends and he, they were sort of exchanging stories and he was, he was telling the story he said you know I had this wonderful donkey he said this donkey it was so good it could do an incredible amount of work but it cost me so much I had to keep feeding it and I'm just a simple man so I thought maybe if I fed it a little bit less and so I just halved the amount of grain I gave it every day and it seemed to do really well so after a few days I halved the amount of grain again and it was doing fine so a week later I reduced the grain some more and it seems great I thought wow this is really not so expensive to have to keep a donkey and, and then I, started, I found that I could just feed it a teaspoon of grain every day and, and this was really wonderful you know and if that donkey hadn't died I'm sure I would have got, to live, got it to live on nothing at all what all too often we do with our body is because we don't like the cost of living in it which is discomfort on occasion is we start to starve it of our attention we start to starve it of our attention the actual manifest experience of connection with our body the conscious intention to be in relationship with our body and our body actually feels what it is to be starved of it by becoming more contracted in more, discom more discomfort 
and more locked in the patterns of, uh, of rigidity because of the lack of attention, because of the lack of moistness that is brought to our body when we attend to it and the fluidities that it gets because of the kindness of attention that in fact it becomes more difficult to inhabit more difficult to inhabit and therefore we find ourselves less and less able to be in our body as a consequence we find ourselves lost in our mind and wondering why that should be all too often it's because it's not easy to be in our body So being willing to actually cultivate a friendliness to our body. I think I said the other night, our body is our temple. It's the place where we practice. To treat it with reverence and with care. And that means to bring attention to it, even when it hurts, even when it's painful. To not close down to it or seek to escape from it. But it's not that easy, is it? We know perhaps very well that this is the case, that maybe we need to attend to our body more. But it's not easy for us to understand that there may be some value. There may be some significance in the experience of pain. There's a line from the Prophet by Khalil Gibran where he says, Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. Even as the stone of the fruit must break, that its heart may stand in the sun, so too must you know pain. And could you keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life, your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. Again, just the image of the the stone of the fruit breaking, that its heart may be, how does it go, its heart may stand in the sun. That the hardness and the rigidity has to break away in order for that which is alive and able to grow in order to spring forth. There's a a legitimacy to the painful experience because it tells us to pay attention. It tells us to pay attention. And what do we notice when we start paying attention? We notice that our tendency is to close down because of fear. Because when we're in contact with the actual experience of that which is painful or something which threatens to perhaps be painful, we want to avoid it at all costs. And it's useful to reflect how, in coming on retreat, how we find ourselves starting to do that in all sorts of ways. How we start to act out of fear. You know, I don't know if this is the case for anyone, but whether when we think of coming to the last sitting, the thought is, oh no, I'll be really tired. That'll be horrible. I think I'll just go to bed, just in case I'm really tired and go to that sitting. But we haven't actually come along to find out if that's true. Or perhaps we we know that we really don't like chanting, so we're not going to go along to the chanting. Thank you very much. But we haven't gone along to see what's that experience really like. Or, this isn't just a plug for the late night sitting, which most of you are coming to anyway. Um, But 
where we make choices based on a sense of I want to avoid something. To look at what's going on when we're in the condition of fear. Not just to acknowledge it and identify it and name it as we can in our meditative practice and it's really useful to do so as we go through the day. But also to look at what's going on in it. How does it, how does it grab us? And what fear tends to do is it projects us into the future. Because fear is always about the future. It, it doesn't exist apart from that dynamic. It takes us into the future. Usually about something that isn't for sure. Because if, if it's for sure, it's not fear anymore. It might be terror, but um, <laughs> it's not fear generally. If it's for sure, we can start to deal with it. But it's fear that takes us into the future. That's the story, the movement of fear. But it's an experience that's happening right now. If we can remember this, then we know most of what we need to know to deal with fear. It's in a story, of, or it's about the future, but it's actually happening right now. When we're fooled into thinking that it's really happening in the future, we're powerless, because there's nothing we can do with that. It doesn't have any reality. And that's when we're caught in the story of the fear. That's what happens to us. We're out there in the thoughts, trying to figure out a solution to something that hasn't happened, but which we fear. And yet, almost inevitably, at the same time we hope, won't happen. If we're sure it's going to happen, we don't struggle with it so much. We perhaps start to think of the next step. So to actually come back into the present moment is to give ourselves a very powerful antidote to the fear which prevents us being present. And there's a lovely poem by Wendell Berry called The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world comes upon me and I awake at the slightest sound in fear of what my life and what my children's lives may be, I go down to where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and where the great heron feeds. I come into the presence of still water and feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. For a while I rest in the grace of the world and am free. I feel a, just a lovely line. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their life with forethought of grief. For a while I rest in the grace of the world and am free. To liberate ourselves from forethought of grief, from that way we get drawn into the future by our fear of that which has not yet come, which may not come, and which we in any event cannot deal with until it should actually come. If we actually can start to do this, we start to see that the difficulties, the challenges that we face are actually invitations to learning, invitations to opening in our life, opening in our heart. And that, in fact, the difficult experience is incredibly important to us. When I was uh, travelling in India quite some years ago, 
I had the uh, the opportunity, and I would say the privilege of being able to work for some time at a in a street clinic in, in Calcutta with an operation called Calcutta Rescue, which was working based on the sides of the streets, providing medical care and uh, assistance to the incredibly poor and impoverished, and in many cases very sick and ill um, street dwellers of Calcutta, and some of the most deprived slum conditions in the world, I guess one would say. And uh, in, in that, one of the areas that we were working was with leprosy sufferers. And while I was there, I, I, I learned from what the problem with leprosy actually is. And it's kind of interesting, we have this concept, I had this idea that leprosy is this condition where sort of bits of your body start to fall off, and it's kind of horrible and gross. But it's not that at all. What leprosy does is it kills the nerve tissue. So people who have that, in, that illness stop being able to feel pain. As a result, they cut themselves, they don't know it. They get an infection, it swells up, it goes gangrenous. These people aren't so educated, they don't know what's going on, it falls off. They reach out to touch something hot, it's burning them, they don't know it, they keep holding it. Skin rots away because it's been damaged. The biggest problem in the leper's life is their inability to feel pain. And when we start to remove ourselves both from pain of the body and equally pain of the heart, when we're unwilling to feel it, we risk making ourselves into emotional lepers. Because what the pain is saying is pay attention here. Pay attention here. You need to see something. You need to understand something. And if we don't, then often the actual harm is not done in the pain but the way in which our failure to understand what we needed to learn there actually affects us and often leads us to causing further harm, injury or pain to ourselves or to others. So we can see how these patterns, these movements of reaction to the difficult experience tend to have the effect of closing us down. We tend to want to harden, we want to push away because we often feel, I can't feel this, it's too much. It's, it's beyond me. And often when we say, I can't, what it means is, it hurts, I don't like it and I don't want to. But it doesn't mean I can't. Because if it's there, you are already feeling it. It's just a question of whether you're willing to open to that truth or not. And yet, because we can't always avoid that which we fear, that which hurts us, and in that inability to avoid it, and yet wanting to avoid it, not always understanding the wisdom of being with the difficult, what we easily find is that our movement away hardens from fear into anger. And that in the position of anger, we no longer feel the pain. We're actually out of touch with the pain but we're locked into an incredibly solid, hard, defended position in which we're sort of willing to strike out at. Fear wants to withdraw from and escape, whereas anger actually strikes out at to push away. To push away that which we feel unable to deal with. That which we have often described in some way as wrong. It's like underneath the anger is often some sadness, some pain, some grief. And again, as the ocean was speaking last night, that 
if we touch into the anger, we often feel that. If we can allow ourselves to feel the anger, we can often drop below that into whatever else is underneath it. And if we can be with those experiences, difficult as they are, we actually find that we're less rigid, we're less stuck in a position. But to understand that anger is essentially trying to protect us, to not judge it as something wrong, it's essentially trying to protect us from something we find difficult. But it's not a successful attempt. It actually has the effect of imprisoning us with that experience. Because it hardens us around the outside. And the experience is on the inside. So rather than actually protecting us from it, it locks it in. And if you check into what the experience of anger is like, it's kind of exquisitely unpleasant. And it gets locked in because we hold on to the view that I should be angry because that was wrong and that shouldn't be and that person should have done something different or I shouldn't be this way if we're angry with ourselves. And that view, it sort of justifies taking the position of rejection but it locks us in to the suffering. And it asks us to contemplate what forgiveness might mean in the face of experiencing the painful contemplate what it would be to release our anger, to let go of that, that view or that belief that we are justified in holding that position, justified in locking ourselves into the armour that we feel in that moment to need. I have an image that I find rather helpful and useful to reflect on this around. And particularly when we're angry with people or with ourselves for things that we've done. We might just reflect on this. But just for now, if you just imagine the scenario as I describe it, probably some of you have heard this from me before, but anyway, you can do this again. Just imagine this scenario as I describe it. You're going for a walk in the woods. Um, that's around here or somewhere you're familiar with. And it's in autumn, there are deep leaves on the ground. You're just walking through the woods. And you come across a small puppy in the woods and having some appreciation for small puppies and uh, feeling some natural friendliness towards such creatures you reach out to stroke it and it bites your hand what's your reaction? just a minute, what's your reaction in that moment? it's bitten your hand, you were trying to stroke this puppy hand comes up maybe you know, pulls away the thought goes, you little <laughs> I won't finish it off, you can probably yourself Maybe we might even find ourselves striking out. Maybe we're not. And just at that moment where we're thinking, God, this little puppy, a horrible little creature, what's it bitten me for? And we're really angry with it. It's a bad dog. We see that its foot is caught in one of those traps with the spring-loaded jaws. And then we suddenly realize, oh, this puppy's in pain. This puppy's confused. It's hurting. It's trying to get itself out of that suffering that it's in. And it doesn't know how, so it's, blindly lashing out and has bitten me. What's then our response? Perhaps forgiveness that it's bitten us. Perhaps we don't even worry about that. Perhaps compassion to try and free this creature from its suffering, to release it from the trap. Perhaps to set about seeking that such traps be banned. Natural compassion responds, even though we've been hurt when we see what has happened. That's the first scenario that we could imagine. 
And the second scenario that we could imagine or visualize, again as I describe it, going along for a walk in the woods. It's been some time since the last one. You've perhaps forgotten about it. And there's another puppy in the woods. You reach out to stroke it. It bites your hand. The reaction begins, maybe, maybe not. But you see that the puppy is buried in leaves up to its belly. You can't see its feet. They're in the leaves. What would it be for you to be able to understand that the puppy's foot was in the trap that you couldn't see? For myself, in reflecting on those things that I've done that perhaps I've regret, that have hurt myself or others, what I've found inevitably is that that was a time of my own confusion or pain that I was in reaction to. That it wasn't coming out of a real wish to harm another, but simply to protect or defend myself. In seeing that in oneself and coming to trust it, perhaps seeing that it is not different for anybody else, Sometimes it's obvious to us what that pain is that we're in and we can easily forgive ourselves or forgive another for what they have done to us or to others that we care for. But sometimes we can't. Sometimes we can't see what that pain is. But is it possible for us to trust that if we ourselves can see that is our own experience, and I think we can if we look at our lives, that we can equally trust that that is the case for any and every other person and creature. That actions that cause harm are born out of pain, not out of evil or wrong or badness, but out of pain and blindness reacting together. And in that, finding that place of forgiveness, that forgiveness is a gift that allows our heart to open again to release the hardness and the harshness that we may hold towards ourselves, towards others, towards this world perhaps, for the pain that we have experienced in our life. To forgive is to begin to feel back into our hearts, and equally to feel back into the world, to actually open to the fact that yes, there is sorrow, there is pain, there is grief, there is fear, sadness, anxiety, loneliness. So many painful, difficult conditions we can experience. And yet, to not blame life for that, to not feel that this is somehow a punishment for something we've done wrong, but to understand that this is an opportunity to learn and to grow. That just as it is of the nature of the body to at times experience the unpleasant experience we call pain, so too it is of the nature of the heart that sometimes it will be touched with that which we call suffering, that which is painful, that which is unwelcome, that which is difficult for us to bear. And yet to understand that our response to it needs not to be one of withdrawing or escaping because it's difficult, but of actually opening into, of trusting in our capacity to embrace and to hold the truth of our life in its wholeness. So long as we're only willing to hold part of it, we experience our life and our heart as fragmented. 
and in that fragmentation incredible suffering above and beyond the pain that led to that fragmentation and therefore even difficult experience can become the way back home the way back to our hearts we find we feel I want my heart to open I wish all this anger would go away and then I could open my heart it's not like that I wish when all this fear went away that I'd be willing to be present and be open it's not like that sometimes we even feel disconnected and we think I have to get rid of this disconnection so I can reconnect seems like that's obvious I must get rid of it to reconnect but it's not like that if it's fear if it's anger if it's disconnection it's actually our willingness to enter into that experience which is what is true right now that is the way back that in connecting with disconnection we we connect with where we are and that is connection holding the experience of being disconnected in our hearts allowing it to be there is actually to experience connection and to find that the experience of disconnection has not in itself any absolute or intrinsic solidity unless we believe in it and that equally fear and anger and the other difficult things we might experience rejection self-judgment sense of unworthiness or shame all these experiences painful as they can be if we can meet them if we can hold them that they actually are the vehicle of our healing and our returning to conscious wholeness I'd like to read you a story that uh, I first heard when I was uh, sitting uh, practicing as we've been practicing here in a monastery in Asia and uh, a, uh, an English bhikkhu or monk came past on Tudong which is like a wandering pilgrimage that the monks do and he, he gave a Dhamma talk which remains one of my favourite talks of all time and I um, enjoyed this particular story that he told sufficiently that I eventually got hold of the tape and transcribed it for myself I finally got round to asking him permission earlier this year if that was okay and uh, he said it was fine um, but I've been using it for quite a while so. <laughs> anyway I'd like to share the story so when I say I I'm speaking of him being with the pain it's not working you know maybe I need to do some yoga oh, that's got it oh, that better oh no oh, here it comes oh, maybe my cushion one cushion two cushions three four maybe angle to the left to the right forward, backwards, not working, doctor, doctor you've got to help me, chiropractor, osteopath, physiotherapist, five years I had this pain, I had an extremely active and ingenious mind at trying to find every possible way to wriggle out of the fact that pain hurts and I don't like it, a very obvious truth, yet I hadn't actually come to that, accepted what one glosses over in a few words, I don't like pain, I had instead acted upon I don't like pain I hadn't actually examined the experience of not liking pain I tried to think well you should like pain pain is good for you pain is bad make it go away but I hadn't really looked into I do not like so one day sitting in meditation I thought this is it the showdown I'm going to sit here for five hours not moving and I'm going to get over this thing pain pain wriggle 
Why did I say that? Why five hours? After all, middle way, moderation and all that. Hours go by. Two hours. Three hours. Three hours and one minute. After about four hours, I was so sick of this pain. My mind had been through all the various circuits of be nice to it, be friendly with it, kill it, and came back to, oh God, this pain. And finally the mind just rested. It got tired out, I guess. Eventually, ignorance does get tired after a while. And has to take a break from being ignorant. This is good news. And instead of ignoring and repressing it, actually began to open to it. Without the, let's open to it and make it go away, or let's open to it and that will make me go to some cosmic sort of space. But just, oh, all right. Then I began to see the sensation throbbing away. And it began to appear in my mind as a kind of glowing light, throbbing, tearing, a tearing experience. And then because of this choiceless attention to it, I began to notice, well, there's that. And then there's this terrible kind of, no, 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 feeling going on, resistance. Then with that, a whole lot of bitterness towards the body. Bitterness towards pain. Oh, pain, I don't like it. It shouldn't happen to me. What did I do? I'm sitting here trying to be peaceful. Pain, go away. This kind of moaning mind. As I contemplated my relationship to the sensation, it became clear to me that there was nothing I could do with the sensation. But I could stop beating it with my mind. I began to have this experience of deep regret for all the beatings and the kicking that this mind had opposed that this mind had imposed upon life, upon this body, upon itself, upon its own thoughts, telling it to shut up, telling it to be this way, telling it to be that way. And I felt like this whole system was just like some mangy dog that had never really been loved, that had just been told what to do and beaten. And in fact this vision arose in my mind of this dog, a kind of mangy, hungry wolf looking at me saying, how long are you going to keep beating me for? I felt this deep sense of regret that there should be so much intolerance and hardness towards life. In my mind's eye, something in me reached out to this creature and started to pat it and say, please forgive me. Then this creature turned into a cartoon dog. I always imagine something like scooby dooby doo you know. This creature turned into a cartoon dog and we were dancing. Me and this pain, me and the dog, me and this pain. And then the whole thing just exploded, very gently. And the pain disappeared. It seemed to say, thank you, finally. I've been knocking on your door for five, da five years. Thank you for opening. Thank you for recognizing that the problem was, I do not like, I will not accept. I will not open to you. And once you open, the lesson has been learned. The business is finished. And of course, when we hear that story, we think, ah, so that's how you do it. <laughs> but of course, it doesn't work like that. We can't do it in order to make it go away or to fix it. As Ramdas once said, you can't be with the pain in order for it to go away because it knows. <laughs> and it does. If we're being with it in order to, for it to go away, it's just another form of aversion. 
another form of trying to get rid of or avoid or escape. But when we actually open to it, when we open to what is there and allow ourselves to receive it, we actually, in ceasing to struggle with and resist it, we discover that its nature is fluid. It is of life, and life is of the nature of fluidity, except where it encounters resistance. It's actually the resistance that stops it from moving, that locks it into place, that locks it into patterns within our body, that locks it into patterns in our mind or our heart. And when we stop resisting it, it starts to move, it starts to flow. And we start to sense the possibility of opening to each experience, to connecting with all of them, not picking and choosing, allowing our heart to be open, trusting that we have the capacity to receive our life, all of it. And in that, what we perhaps also begin to discover is that where we might have felt that we would be overwhelmed by this incredible, at times, challenge of being alive, the incredible suffering that we may feel in our own lives, the incredible suffering that we might see in this world, where we might feel that we would be overwhelmed by it, in fact, we realize that we can let it in. And yet it's not just about letting it in. The heart has not just one door at the front. The heart equally has a door at the back. And that when we actually can allow the pain in, we find that it can pass through us. And while we're connected to it, we are not burdened by it. Because in our heart being open, front and back, we're actually connected to life. And the pain and the suffering and the struggle of life rest in the life itself, which is large enough to hold it all. Even if we, when we feel separate and individual, are unable to. It's when we close the doors of our heart, that doesn't actually, it's not opening the heart that lets the pain in. When the heart's doors are closed, the pain is trapped in there, it's already there. Opening the heart is what actually allows it to be released. But that process of releasing is one in which we feel, in which we feel. And yet if we're willing to feel, that very feeling is the means of our deepening conscious connection with life, of becoming aware that we are tender, we are soft, we are fluid, we are of the nature of life, and it touches us just as we touch it. In that capacity which we discover, in the opening of our heart, in the receiving of our life. We find it is possible to be at peace with life, to be at peace with the world, to be at peace with our experience, just as it is. And that that peacefulness actually has a transforming quality to it, which we understand as a healing, as a healing of our fear of the world. It's a healing of our fear of actually being part of something this far. And holding and receiving all that that means in its challenge and its beauty, in its pain and its 
exquisite nourishment that it offers to us. So as we go through these days, as we feel perhaps <coughs> touched, as we find maybe the layers dropping away, to trust in that capacity of our heart, to be open amidst this world, to be connected to it. And to trust that from within that capacity, within that condition, the natural peacefulness of life the well-being of life will show itself to us. So could we just sit for a moment or two, please? May all beings be free from fear. May all beings be touched by tenderness. May all beings abide with an open heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.